Hey, good morning. So good to see you this morning. Um, I'll say a welcome to all of our church family listening online, watching online. We're glad to have you worshiping with us this morning. I'll just say a quick note right now so that you know. Uh, we're going to have uh, what we call our parish family meeting after this. So it's a little church business meeting where we kind of discuss our family business. And if you're online, just to let you know, we're still going to be broadcasting. I know a few folks have reached out, said they couldn't make it today, but wanted to know what was going to happen in the meeting. Don't worry. We're just going to stay online. So if you just stay with us, we'll be here together. You may have noticed that today's gospel reading is actually a continuation of one story, right? When Jesus comes into the synagogue at Nazareth and preaches this uh, amazing sermon, or really just makes this really bold claim about this passage he reads. And then what we, what we just read today is kind of the continuation of that. And so I think it's important that we just kind of recap like the story of what's going on here, right? So first thing Jesus does is he gets baptized at the Jordan and the spirit descends on him, right? Like in the form of a dove. And then the text says that the spirit leads him out into the wilderness for a time of fasting and to be tempted by Satan. And then after that, the Holy Spirit leads him back into Galilee. So kind of his home state where he's from. And it's there that the text says that Jesus full of the Holy Spirit begins to go in the synagogues of Galilee and begins to proclaim the good news. He begins his teaching ministry. And the text says that news about his ministry spread all over, and he received some really great reviews. So he's doing really good on Yelp right now. Like People are super into it, right? And then he walks into his own hometown in Nazareth, And he gets up in the most common way that you would do in church, like we do here, and reads Isaiah 61. Only when he does it, he reads it self-referentially. Because when he's done reading, he tells the folks, and what we just read, you are beginning now to see it in my ministry. And actually, this is happening right before your very eyes. Right here in your hearing, this is happening. Well, what does that text say? Let's just go over uh, for a minute to refresh ourselves. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I have never belonged to a church where the walls are literally made out of a whiteboard. And I always, whenever teachers said, hey, John, you want to go up to the board and write? I was always super happy. Is it okay if I just write on the board? I want to be able to do this at least one time uh, until the Lord provides us with a better space. Okay. Uh, So we've got, I just want to go over the chart real quick. Good news for the poor What else we got? Release. Sorry. Release for the captives. Sight for the blind. Sin. 
sent out free is literally how it reads for the oppressed and a proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I wanted to take a second to write that out because this is a summary, in a sense, of Jesus' ministry. This is what Jesus is up to. In fact, we could ask the question, why is it that Luke begins here with this passage in this, this moment into Nazareth? Because if you read the other gospel the other gospels, Mark or Matthew, you notice that this kind of happens in the middle of his ministry. Why does Luke, in telling the story, say, all right, this passage is gonna be emblematic of what Jesus is and who he does, and so we're gonna kind of move that up to the beginning so folks can get a picture of what's going on? Well, I wanna talk about that for a second. One, we see that Jesus' ministry is marked by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is filled with the power of the Spirit. And if you keep reading through Luke and you read on to the sequel, by the way, there's a sequel to this book. It's really good called the book of Acts. I encourage you to read it all the way through. We're gonna be in Luke all year, right? Like this is the year Luke, uh, year C is Luke. Wonderful gospel, wonderful book. If you haven't read it in a while, I encourage you to get back in it. And this idea of being filled with the power of the Spirit is gonna animate all of Jesus' ministry. In fact, when we get into Luke, we're going to see that same spirit operating in the church. In fact, that same spirit animating Jesus animates us here this morning. And so it's super important, even though we went over this last week, I want us just to go back over it one more time to refresh ourselves, because what Luke is trying to show is that the spirit-filled ministry is actually what Jesus is going around doing. It's not just in this chapter, it's in all the chapters to come. And so we've got good news preached for the poor. Well, who are the poor? What I want you to know is that for us, sometimes when we think of the poor, we think of just a tiny few people that are like living maybe on the edge of our neighborhood or maybe on the edge of town or something. But in Jesus' day, especially in Galilee, for Jewish folks, this actually includes a lot of people. So he's not just saying good news for a few people. It's good news for a lot of people. But I want you to understand there's a lot of ways that you can be poor in this sense. So it definitely means socioeconomic, as in, I don't have a lot of money and savings. A lot of folks in this stage is subsistence. They're literally day laborers. They're going to make some money today, and they're going to use that money to go home and eat and wake up and do it again the next day. But there's more ways to be poor, or you might say on the margins. Um, One might be ritual purity. So basically, in the Jewish culture, you've got folks that are able to walk into the temple and folks that aren't able to walk into the temple. You've got some folks, by by virtue of the job that they do, they have very low status. And some folks, by virtue of the job that they do, they have high status. You've got other things like gender and Ethnicity. And these are all at work in when it comes to this idea of poor or who's on the margins. 
If you think about what's, what's really big in, in Luke's gospel is this idea of the temple. The gospel starts in the temple, right? When Zechariah is there, the angel appears to him. The temple is front and center in this gospel. And think about who can go into the temple and who can't. And so if you're a woman, you can go into, if you're a Jewish woman, you can go into part of the temple, but you can only go so far. If you're a Gentile, you can't even get that far, right? You can go into the court of the Gentiles, but you can't go any further. And so on. And so what we see is that Jesus's ministry is going to be good news for the poor and all kinds of people that are being excluded from the presence of God. If we think about the temple as the locus of the presence of God, it's going to be open the door for all kinds of people. And then, of course, we got release from captives. And in, in what you got to know is in Isaiah, this is the idea that God's people are going into exile in Babylon. And it's a prophecy that these folks are going to be released, right? They're captive, and they're going to be able to return to Jerusalem where they're going to be free to worship God. And it's the idea that even today, even though technically God's people are able to return to the land, there are some people that still are not free. And then there's the idea of sight for the blind. What I want you to know is just, in a, you're going to read a little bit further, and Jesus is literally going to heal the sight of a blind person. But what I want you to know is that is actually bigger than just the miracle itself. Because in the Bible, light is salvation. And literally being able to see is salvation. It's a metaphor for what God is doing for Israel. He is restoring their sight that they might see. He's sending folks free that are oppressed. We're going to see in just a few paragraphs later that folks have been oppressed by demons for years. And Jesus is literally exercising these demons so that these folks are now able to be free, able to function, able to function economically, and also able again to enter the table and enter into the religious life of Israel. I was talking to, uh, with someone about this passage recently, and they're asking, do you think this is spiritual or is this material when Jesus comes and says these things about him? And what I want to point out to you is that if you, whether you are a Christian fundamentalist, like our, our, some of our fundamentalist brothers and sisters, or you're a theologically liberal, like some of our brothers and sisters there, either space you're going to try to like materialize certain parts and make other parts spiritual, right? So some of my fundamentalist br brothers, they're going to look at good news for the poor and they're going to think, oh, that's like poor in spirit, people that are just kind of sad and need kind of a pick-me-up, right? But then when it comes down to like a miracle, like recovery, well, we know Jesus did miracles, so he's literally talking right there, right? And then some of my, some of my theologically liberal brothers and sisters, they're going to be like, good news for the poor, absolutely, right? They're ready for that one. But then when it comes down to like recovery of sight for the blind, they're going to be like, well, we're not sure if these miracles really happen, but we know that with Jesus, we could just see better, right? Like, and you know what? The truth is it's both. It's not either or. Like these meanings are just really thick as you go through the gospel. And so when I read these miracle stories, like I really have faith that Jesus really walked around and did these things. 
But I also recognize that often these miracles are pointing to something that is so much bigger, something that's trying to, does this have to do with forgiveness of sin? Yes, literally every single part of this has to do with forgiveness of sin. The very reason that God's people were in oppression is because they had turned their backs on God's good and loving and beautiful ways. So it's not an either or, it's a both in. And so I wanted to, first of all, point out just kind of remember from last week that the work that this whole, this whole section of Luke is about the work of the Spirit through the Messiah. And literally, Messiah literally means the one anointed with the Spirit. And that that work is working through Jesus to liberate people from the power of sin. And then today, we're going to get to the third aspect that I want to point out that defines Jesus' ministry. It's about the power of sin. It's about, I'm sorry, it's about the power of the spirit liberating from sin. And then thirdly, his ministry is marked by the rejection of Christ's liberating ministry for the very reason that is extended to too many people. And that's where our passage picks up this morning. Deacon Gerald read, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. Well, it started off really good, right? <laughs> People are actually, in the beginning, are super into it. And the Nazarene crowd is excited about his message. And they have good reason to. Why? No doubt they would have seen themselves in the message, right? They are a poor people in need of good news. They have been beat down for years by Gentile oppressors. And now they're actually ready for the year of the Lord's favor. They're like, yes, this is our guy saying now is the time. Let's do this. But then it doesn't take long and someone in the crowd says, wait, wait up, wait up a minute. Isn't that Joseph's son? Like, didn't we see him like riding his bike to high school? Like, we know him. And then Jesus says to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Dr. Cure yourself. And you will say, do here in your hometown the things that you have done in Capernaum. Now, that isn't exactly easy to understand, so let's just break it down. There's this ancient saying that they would have been familiar with, Dr. Cure yourself. And basically what that is saying is, hey, you're doing really great stuff out there, but like we could actually use some help, the people from your own hometown. So that's literally what they're saying, which is another way to say is, could you do for us what you did in Capernaum? Like we hear about all these really great miracles that you're doing over there in Capernaum, but could you do them for us? But it turns out they actually aren't happy about what's going on in Capernaum. It also could sound like this. Don't you know that those people aren't our people? Don't you know that it's Capernaum and a bunch of Gentiles live there? Don't you know that the Capernaum Jews, they kind of smell like pork? Like they've been hanging around those Gentiles. Don't you know that God's favor and goodness and his freedom is supposed to be for people like us? And this is what they're thinking. And so Jesus then tells them something that's going to calm them down and reassure them that he's a really nice guy and he's just always interested in 
saying diplomatic things, right? He's just a nice Southern guy. Wait up. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. The text doesn't say that. No. Jesus goes on to say something that makes the people want to kill him. What does he say? He says, during the time of the prophet Elijah, there's a severe famine and there's many widows in Israel. And yet God didn't send Elijah to a single one of those widows. And then his successor, the prophet Elisha, during his time, there's a ton of people with leprosy in Israel. And God didn't send him to a single one of our people. God sent him instead to Naaman, the general of the enemy Syrian army. God's economic freedom and flourishing spilling over to Israel's enemies. God's healing and liberating power spilling over to Israel's enemies. And so here we are again. Jesus's ministry is just like Elijah and Elisha. Through him, God is bringing healing and wholeness and freedom and forgiveness to all people. And these Nazarenes can't believe that Jesus' grace would be extended to these kinds of people. And so they say, if you help our enemies, you are our enemy. And so they do to him what we so often try to do with anyone who threatens the life of our community. They try to kill him. Fred Craddock, who was a renowned professor of preaching at Emory's Candler School of Theology here in Atlanta, he wrote this commentary on this passage. That these two stories of Elijah and Elisha are in their own scriptures and quite familiar, perhaps accounts in part for the intensity of their hostility. Anger and violence are the last offense of those who are made to face the truth of their own tradition, which they have long defended and embraced. Learning what we already know is quite painfully difficult. All of us know what it is to be at war with ourselves, sometimes making casualties of those who are guilty of nothing but speaking the truth in love. Wow. I've been listening to the biography of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And as I read this quote, I can see so much of the story here, right? He was essentially confronting white people with their own long defended and embraced tradition of democracy and freedom and justice for all. And how angry did he make white people here in Atlanta and all over the United States when he claimed that those very principles upon which America was founded should also apply to his people? Speak the truth and love about a people and their tradition and they will try to kill you. I want to take a moment 
to talk about reading the Bible and reading it devotionally. If you're like me, you tend to identify with the protagonist in a story. Anyone do that? Like you identify with the good guy in the story. And so I do this. We even train our kids to do this, right? Like I'll watch Star Wars with my boy, Martin, and he'll be like, I want to be a stormtrooper. I'm always like, no, man, you got to be a Jedi, you know? Like literally every time. It gets worse than that. I won't go, I won't go too far to the examples. But I think he wants to be a bad soldier. Let's just put it that way. But he's learning. And I'm sure after a couple of years, I'll have him programmed to always think of himself as the good guy in the story. And it's super easy for us to read a passage like this and to identify with Jesus, right? How he's trying to do the right thing and people just keep holding him back, right? I do something good and my family keeps holding me back, right? Like all those people I went to high school are holding me back, right? It'd be so easy for us just to go there and just to think we're the good people just like Jesus. But here's a Bible reading tip that I want to encourage you to do. As you read through the Gospels, there's always conflict. There's always someone kind of standing against Jesus. And I want to encourage you, instead of always trying to identify with Jesus, first just open your heart and ask the Holy Spirit to show you, in what ways am I like these people here that are standing against the purposes of Jesus and the work of his Spirit in the world, right? As we read the, Nazareth, the folks in Nazareth, as we read the Pharisees, as we read Jesus' very own disciples who are often <laughs> in opposition to what he's trying to do, as we think about Pilate, all these people, probably the first thing we can do is just ask, Lord, what are the ways in which I do this very thing to you? Craddock relates this passage to the story of Jonah. And if you know Jonah, he was a prophet in the Old Testament who was sent to Israel's enemy in the city of Nineveh. And he got so angry when the Assyrians responded in the affirmative to the message to repent, right? He got so upset about the mercy and the grace that God had extended to Israel's enemies. And Craddock says this, Jonah stands for Jew and Christian alike. Our capacity to be offended by God's grace to all those of whom we do not approve. This morning, we can ask ourselves, how have I been offended by God's grace? No matter where we are located socially, whether we are black or white or Latino or Asian, whether we're rich or poor or middle class, highly educated, less educated, liberal, conservative, centrist, whether you're Baptist or Anglican or Roman Catholic or Methodist or megachurch non-denominational, we can all find ourselves like Jonah, like our Nazarene friends in the gospel today, being offended by that God is extending grace, bringing healing and restoration and freedom and flourishing and forgiveness to those folks over there. Father, grant us grace to recognize the work of your spirit through your Messiah, that we might rejoice in the grace and healing you are extending to all people, even to those whom we never imagined deserving it. In your holy name we pray. Amen.